Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 17th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A couple of squirrels died in Yosemite National Park. Odd that this would even be a news item. Barely makes the Yosemite Park Fauna Update podcast, let alone this, the gist, a podcast whose brief is the entire world and whose scope is all of recorded history. So why did the Yosemite squirrels make the news? Well, what if I told you they were killed by a Minnesota dentist on safari? Then you'd perk up. No, you probably wouldn't because we don't care. We don't care about squirrels. We care about lions. We get mad at the dentist then. Okay, what if I told you the squirrels died of a bacterial infection caused by Yersinia pestis. Now, the microbiologists in the audience might take notice, although probably the microbiologists are listening to Yosemite Park Fauna update that podcast. But I want to take note. I want to talk to you about Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis was named after Alexandre Emile Eugene Yersin. And he was the guy who figured out that the thing named after him, Yersinia pestis, caused the bubonic plague. That's right. Yersinia pestis is the plague. The squirrels died of the plague. But this got me to thinking. Why would you want the plague named after you? I'm sure Alexandre Yersin worked really hard, but still, it's the plague. It doesn't make much sense. Even Hiram W. Disembowel was really upset when they named that particular action after him, though he did a lot of research into disemboweling. Actually, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe disease researchers are totally excited to have the ailment they spent their entire life working on named after them. My darling Maria, as I toil away in my lab, I fear that my life's work will have gone for naught, and the world shall never remember my name. But... It is in the service to mankind that I trudge on. I am eternally yours, Nigel H. Syphilis. Dear Nigel, how does the day find you? I so do look forward to our departure upon the morrow for the countryside. But it is with concern I write to you, Nigel, for I know of course your full name and it is odd that you should feel the need to include it in your missive to me, as it is not even the style of the time meaning our time, this time, right now. And therefore, it is also odd that I should mention that fact. But Nigel, I tremble as I write this, for I must confess, I have met another. He too is a researcher. Our love grows stronger every day. And though it breaks my heart to forsake thee, Nigel, I must tell you, I have feared living my days as Mrs. Syphilis. I shall soon become 
Mrs. Frederick Gonorrhea. You have never once applauded my ambitions, Nigel, but Frederick, he has given me the clap. We have a feverish burning love, a madness that I might never know as a syphilis. With a full heart, Maria Dental Dam. Now, I don't know why she's named Dental. That was just her family name. Oh, yeah, back to the uh, Yosemite squirrels. Everything's going to be okay. They infected a child. He's going to recover. No one's died in the plague in California in almost 10 years because, as with certain other diseases, it can be treated with antibiotics. On the show today, I spiel about a casually tossed off plan that would upend the Constitution, but hey, free helicopter rides. And we'll delve deep into a metaphorical treasure trovacopia about metaphors. But first, crafter of funny stories, screenplays, and TV shows, Simon Rich. Simon Rich's latest collection is Spoiled Brats. He is the author of, oh geez, here we go, Ant Farm and Other Desperate Situations. That was short stories, funny stuff. Free Range Chickens, also short stories. Elliot Allagash, a novel. What in God's Name, a novel, very helpful that he labels his novels as such, The Last Girlfriend on Earth and Other Love Stories, and The Last Girlfriend on Earth turned into a TV show, and all this stuff is made The Guardian, the English newspaper, ask Simon Rich, the funniest man in America. Hello, Simon. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I didn't read that article to the end. What was the answer? Uh, I think no. Oh, shit. I hate when they do that. I was hoping for yes, although there was a paragraph in that that says, Rich's fizzy collection of short stories that forms part of the current resurgence of interest in all things Brooklyn, ideal reading matter when you're on your way to see Noah Baumbach's Brooklyn set comedy Francis Ha while listening to the new Vampire Weekend album and looking forward to the next series of Lena Dunham's Girls. It's weird. I like all of those things listed individually, yet as a collective, I want to punch that imagined person in the face. Why is that? Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, so-called millennial uh, uh, culture is, uh, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very easy to hate. I think that uh, there's a perception of this generation that we're particularly self-absorbed. And, you know, it's very funny. I always think that a lot of the criticism comes from baby boomers, who are, uh, of course, famously the, uh, probably the most egocentric uh, uh, generation in human history. Yeah. But, uh, you know, history is cyclical. And I think the answer is young people are self-absorbed. It doesn't matter what time they're living in. Spoiled Brats is, I mean, it's loaded with characters that are maybe not sympathetic, but definitely have a twist. How would you describe, uh, is there a through line in the collection? Yeah, it's, it's a collection about millennials coming of age, which, which uh, usually means that they're in their early to, to mid-30s. The most villainous character in the book, uh, the, the most spoiled of the spoiled brats is is myself as Simon Rich, and in the sort of main novella that's the center of the of, of the collection, uh, he's visited by his great great grandfather Herschel Rich, who is a hard scrabble immigrant from the old country, and uh, he, he falls into a vat of pickles at work, and is unfortunately brined for a hundred years. And he emerges in a, a present day Brooklyn and, and meets his great great grandson me, and is understandably horrified by the uh, slothful, uh, self-indulgent, privileged way in which I, I live my days. So you say that this collection is self-loathing. Do you think it's easier to get comedy with characters who are despicable as opposed to comedy from characters who are likable? Uh, that's a good question. I think that 
the main thing you need in order to make comedy work is the same thing you need to make any kind of writing work, which is that it needs to be relatable. Mm-hmm. People need to see some of themselves in, in the characters and in the stories that the characters are experiencing. Do you think if you made a pie chart of not your writerly life, but your actual disposition, it would be about 25% optimistic, 75%? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that's, that would be a pretty accurate description. Yeah, I read an article where it quoted your mom about you, and it said, if the Knicks lost the basketball game Simon took it hardest, he would burst into tears. He was more open with his emotions. So it must have been a tough year she for was you. Describing the, she was describing the 2014 season. <laughs> she was describing yeah, I, uh, yeah, the Dolan years. Crying all the time. Yeah, that's, that's all recent. Uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I'm a big Knicks fan. I'm actually wearing here Knicks socks right now. You can't see them because we're on a podcast. All right, speaking of Knicks and comedy writing, were you a big fan of the writing of Woody Allen? It's impossible to not be influenced by Woody Allen when you're you know, a 21st century comedy writer. I've not only been influenced by Woody Allen, but I've been influenced by people who have been influenced by Woody Allen. Right, you know, that's I'm a, a, good point. A, few, a few generations removed. But I would say that my biggest influences were The Simpsons, the absurdist sketch comedy shows like Kids in the Hall and, and Mr. Show and... And in terms of prose, my, my favorite writers were always more in the silly school than in the satirical school. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of P.G. Woodhouse, and I loved Evelyn Waugh, and I loved, uh, I loved Douglas Adams, who's a little bit of both, both kind of absurdist and satirical, but fiction more than like uh, essays. I remember when, when your first book hit, and I guess you got the contract when you were a Harvard undergrad and you were being compared to Conan O'Brien, who also was the editor of a Harvard Lampoon. Is the stuff you were just talking about, absurdist stuff, is that a Harvard Lampoon sensibility, less likely to make comedy that makes a point as opposed to, you know, try to uh, explore the edges of absurdity in life? Well, there was a very like a firm rule at the Lampoon that you weren't even really allowed to write satirical comedy. It was considered cheap to uh, get a laugh because you were espousing the correct political ideology or making fun of a common undergraduate gripe. You know, uh, we were supposed to be writing jokes there that were about pirates and uh, Jews, not about Democrats and uh, the dining hall. So it, it was like actually an incredibly strictly absurdist, I would say, over there. When you wrote for Saturday Night Live, was most of your stuff this absurdist stuff? Because that's a place that will take some of that, but also definitely wants the political sketches. Totally, yeah. I mean, SNL is a variety show, so it's it's all types of comedy. And uh, uh, yeah, the, the stuff that I wrote was definitely the last 20 minutes of the show, sort of after Weekend Update. And uh, it was mostly, yeah, in the uh, absurdist tradition, it was closer to... My, my favorite Lauren Michaels sketch show, uh, which is Kids in the Hall. But, you know, I also worked on a lot of satire there, and it's, uh, especially in 2008, good satire is hard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, just, it's really, really hard. Um, the, the obvious idea is always right in front of you, and you have to figure out a, a way to do it with a nuance and originality. And my personal preference is I'd, I'd rather be writing caveman love stories than fake news articles, but that doesn't mean that I, I think it's easy to do the latter. Do you find the plot the hardest part of either a short story or a novel? And do you trust yourself? I imagine you trust yourself. Once you have the main idea, you trust yourself that the line-by-line funniness will definitely come. 
if it isn't easy to write, mm-hmm. then it usually, in my experience, it usually means you've picked the wrong premise and that something is broken at its core. You know, we always like use the expression in, in, in my writer's room, writing downhill. Yeah. Like, if you find that it's an uphill battle, it, it, it probably isn't because you're failing on the sentence-by-sentence level. It's probably because you, you have some much bigger <laughs> inherent flaw in, in whatever it is you're trying to construct. Yeah, I'm more of this philosophy of just keep coming at it from different angles until you find the one that feels fun. Simon Rich's new collection is Spoiled Brats. He's the executive producer of Man Seeking Woman on the FXX. Thanks, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me. I am an adherent to the teachings of the great courses. I love learning for the pure pleasure of it, knowing as the stuff goes into my brain that I'm getting smarter, and somewhere in the back of my brain that I will be able to use this to amaze and delight my friends. Please note, by amaze and delight, I mean they will put up with me. The Great Courses has fantastic audio and video lectures and so many topics from history to science to art, like a great business and presentation collection that I recommend called Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory. There's one called How Conversation Works, one called Art of Public Speaking and Influence, Mastering Life's most powerful skill. They're great tools and insights for anyone looking to improve their recall at work to sharpen presentation skills, become a better negotiator. You know, trump it up, but without the haircut and the bluster. The Great Courses are celebrating its 25th anniversary. The courses are available in DVD, CD, streaming, digital downloads, or with a Great Courses app. Order any of the four business and presentation courses that I just mentioned for $9.95. The special price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. All right, here's the U.S. News. Top jobs for 2014, one software developer, two systems analyst, three dentist. All right, this is a crap list. This is a clearly ridiculous list. Because anyway, I got the top job right here, metaphor designer. You didn't know there was a job? Oh, yeah, it is. Michael Arard did it, and he wrote about it for the website Ion. It's spelled A-E-O-N. Maybe it's pronounced Eon. But anyway, Arard, he's a metaphor designer. Hello, Michael. Hey there, Mike. So how does a metaphor designer hang out a shingle and tell people who will pay for the design of metaphors that you're in the trade? The way that I got into it was this. Back in 2008, the Frameworks Institute, which is a think tank based in Washington, D.C., was looking for someone who was trained as a linguist and who sort of understood strategic communications, who understood the work of George Lakoff and some other folks. My official title was a senior researcher, which, you know, you got to admit is pretty dry as compared to metaphor designer, which was really a, a sort of self-titling. Right. And so you write about in the piece how you were talking about a couple of flowers. The orchid, which is, it requires a lot of very specific nutrients and you got to put in the right soil and got to take a lot of uh, a lot of care and attention versus the dandelion which is the resilient plant problem was orchids are valued dandelions are looked down upon yeah and that was really a, a signal example for me of why metaphor design you know and why the testing part is really 
powerful because you have scientists who say, yeah, let's call it an orchid and let's call it a dandelion, and their only audience is other scientists. Who already know what they're talking about. Or undergraduates, yeah. right, who all sit there and nod and say, yeah. yes, professor, and that person, that communicator, walks away thinking, hey, this is a good way to communicate that idea. Right. And it may work for that individual. This is a metaphor, but I call it the social and cognitive downstream. So after you have kind of created that explanation, it's going to leave your sphere of control, and it's going to be in the hands and the minds and on the lips of people who had no access to its original source. What's your start-me-up of metaphors? Mine, personally? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, talking about child mental health, you know, as a, as a, as a table, mm-hmm. as a piece of furniture, whose usability is determined by how level it is and how there's lots of different inputs into it. I like the, uh, the metaphor that we came up with for executive function, so higher-order cognitive skills that kids have to develop as sort of mental airspace control. You know, that's why we don't multitask. You know, multitasking is having too many planes in the air that are trying to land at one time. So you need to keep your, your airspace controlled, you know, know how many planes are in the air, how many you can land, and you can train a little bit to build your runway out to expand its size, but it's really not, you know, all that expandable. I think sometimes in politics, politics just becomes a battle of the metaphors. So it's not even about thinking about the policy. It's thinking about who has the better metaphor for the policy. I think of economic politics, people talking about stimulus versus austerity. The debate wasn't even joined on that level. It was, I have to balance my own budget when I'm at the kitchen table versus profligate spending, even though the personal budget is not really apt when thinking of the national economy. Yeah, and I think that, like, however, that metaphor is very, very powerful and persistent because of ways that we have of understanding finance through families and what families do. And I could puncture that metaphor. I could say, oh, really? Does your own personal family print money? Do you wage war? But that's, that's all I could do. It's hard to make a metaphor for what a national economy is other than, say, the national economy. And all you're left is saying, you know, a, a national economy is not is not a household economy. Yeah, right? and, and all it's going to do is cue that is cue that thing that you're trying to get people away from. There are things that are really really hard. You know, those are the kinds of systems metaphors that you know that Americans aren't really good at coming up with. We just don't think in those terms. And I think also there are ways in which human cognition is really not built for for understanding or appreciating real complex. But it should be the case, and tell me if your research has borne this out, that we as a people, society, might be getting better at grasping metaphors. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows we're gaining a couple IQ points uh, decade by decade just because we're engaged in more abstract reasoning. And then when you layer on to that the fact that the world is becoming more interconnected, so we're being exposed to more stimuli, more facts, basically raw material to make a metaphor out of. That's an interesting notion. I mean, I would say that what we use those connections for is brain candy, like what's Kim Kardashian doing, Mm -hmm. while figures like that are really good, very potent and widely known, very usable. I mean, I always thought that if you wanted to describe what's wrong with the criminal justice system, that you have to say something like, 
every white person is Lindsay Lohan. In terms of the system, every white person is and will be treated like Lindsay Lohan is treated. Yeah. You know, that was just too incendiary to even get anywhere. You know, it's maybe hard to get one example that plays the same way across such a uh, diverse society. Yeah, that was always a big challenge. And also, you know, it's a population that is not it's diverse in lots of ways. It's also cognitively diverse. You know, people have different, I always call it metaphorical competence, you know, a different ability to kind of process this stuff in their heads and find a connection with things. Sometimes you'd be on the street with people and they would just go, I don't know what you're talking about. And you would have to say thank you very much and and try to recruit somebody else. And sometimes people would be brilliant at it. I mean, it was like you were talking to a scientist or an expert, you know, all through your metaphor. And that was, those were, those were really incredible moments. Where do your ideas for a metaphor hit you? Do you have a routine you stick to and you know that every once in a while, wow, the sun will pop into your head? Driving. Yeah, that's the showering thing where you disassociate your brain. You're letting that busy part of your brain occupy itself and then you can really think. Or it's doing some other task. Things would come cooking dinner all Mm -hmm. the time. But inevitably, I would say, I need to come up with, I need to think about, you know, metaphor candidates for X. Inevitably, I would walk away not doing it at all, but sitting down to do the taxes. Like, okay, I got to do this. And then, oh, God, I got a great metaphor. Michael Arard is author, journalist, and linguist. He wrote about his job designing metaphors for the online publication Ion or possibly the online publication Eon. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Meeting is hard. Meeting expectations, meeting payroll, or just having a meeting. Time, money, hassle. Having a meeting slows you down. It doesn't have to because there's a solution called Citrix GoToMeeting. You meet your clients and coworkers online. It's the smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to because with GoToMeeting, you could meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. No travel expenses. And when I say no travel expenses, it's not just the travel expenses that you actually have to pay. It's the ones you have to document to get reimbursed for, which is worse than the expenses I think we all know. None of this is true with Citrix GoToMeeting. You just turn on your webcam. It has HD quality. It's like being in the room with the people you want to meet with. No signups, no speed bumps. Click a link and you can share screens to present to review and to get feedback in real time. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you are seeing so your team can get on the same page. Page to get going, I would like you to try GoToMeeting today. Try it, in fact, free for 30 days. There is nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click on the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel, the great Trump tribution. Donald Trump is doing us all a service. I will tell you how... But first, I will tell you that his service is not this plan to end, quote, birthright citizenship. He says babies born in the U.S. should not automatically become U.S. citizens if their parents are not citizens. Now, let us consult the Constitution on this matter, 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. So undoing that will require changing the 14th Amendment. But, you know, isn't the 14th Amendment, that's kind of a contract with the country. That's, I guess you could say, a deal. It's very tough to do when you say rip up a deal because I'm a deal person. And you get that. I, Even if it's, you've I'm made... Against, you've... Let me tell you. 
but I will police that deal. You know, I've taken over some bad contracts. I buy contracts where people screwed up and they have bad contracts. But you have to buy by But it. I'm really good at looking at a contract and finding things within a contract that even if they're bad. Mm -hmm. I would police that contract so tough that they don't have a chance, as bad as the contract is. All right, that was Trump on Meet the Press talking about the Iran deal, which is a bad deal, he says. But he also says you can't tear up the Iran deal. That actually is a service pointing that out, not the service I'm going to get to. But first, let's talk about his immigration plan. Here's a little more or actually less detail on Meet the Press. One good thing You'll about the Dream Act executive you're going to have to. DACA. We have to make a whole new set of standards. And when people come in, they have so to come in. You're going to split up families. Chuck, you're going to deport children. Chuck, no, no. We're going to keep the families together. We have to keep the families together. But you're going to keep but them they together have to go. But they have to go. What if they have no place to go? We will work with them. They have to go. That was Trump talking to Chuck Todd. The details of ending birthright citizenship, that wasn't actually spoken to Chuck Todd. That came up after the Meet the Press interview. It was posted on Trump's website. But you still get the idea that the campaign heard Trump's typical tough talk, not exactly well thought out responses. Basically, it's the toughest bluster he can muster. And they matched it in print with his plan to fight the Constitution. Such a draconian proposal might hurt a different politician. But with Trump, a misstated fact, an ugly aside, a scurrilous adherence to a disprovable accusation, none of that's going to do in Trump. And that brings me to his first great contribution. When we think of what does undo a presidential campaign, political commentators tell us that it's almost always a gaffe, right? Romney's 47%, the first Bush's read my lips, Dukakis in a tank, Kerry being swift-boated. Guess what? None of these events or campaigns or memes, though the words weren't mentioned most of the time for these events I've mentioned, most of those things didn't sink campaigns. What sinks a campaign is how we got a two-party system, we generally pick candidates who adopt or at least give the impression they're adopting popular positions either slightly to the right or slightly to the left of where the line of dissent is in public opinion. One candidate's going to be pro-choice, one candidate's going to be pro-life because the public is more or less evenly divided between those two stances. You got immigration versus walls, you got war versus diplomacy, you got protectionism versus free trade. We demand the two parties have differing takes on these issues and then the candidates decide where along the dividing line they should stake their claim and people vote accordingly. In fact, they don't even go through this whole process. 80% of people just vote liberals vote liberals, conservatives vote conservative, and the candidates that the major parties nominate are actually adhering to those mindsets. Now, sometimes smaller campaigns are undone by a gaffe, like voters in Missouri weren't paying that much attention to the nuances of a Senate race. Here, Todd Aiken say something extremely stupid. Then they pay a little bit of attention. They realize they don't really like Todd Aiken and he's done for. But candidates in a presidential election are thoroughly picked over. And one comment can't reveal that an otherwise acceptable candidate is actually repulsive. I hope that this entire notion, the fatal gaffe, I hope it begins to fade. And if it does, that will be another Trump contribution. In fact, a further Trump contribution on top of that will be the media reforming their usual wall-to-wall, gaffe-to-gaffe way of covering campaigns. The media is pretty much gaffe-oriented. Yeah, I know, it has about as much chance of happening as Trump does of marrying a woman his own age, but it is fun to see the media constantly getting Trump wrong when it uses the standard barometers, so maybe they'll reform. 
I also hope that the Trump sentence shows that the political advisors have been wrong all along. They counsel their candidates not to make mistakes, to be safe, to fear making that gaffe, because we know the media covers the gaffe. If everyone just loosens up, if everyone were a little more interesting, that would be a great service. And Trump really is the most interesting person running for president. I listened to that interview on Meet the Press. I never knew what he was going to say next. Now, some of that is that he just doesn't have a long track record, so you don't know what his stances are on a lot of issues. Some of that is he's really out of his depth, so I'll just have to make it up. Some of that is he is kind of an unconventional thinker. Like when asked who his military advisors were, Trump said, mostly guys I see on television. It was an astounding, interesting moment. It was probably honest. It was totally scary. Then again, Lindsey Graham, who's always given credit for his foreign policy expertise, who was an Air Force reservist, his policy prescriptions are pretty much identical to Trump, just as scary. I mean, Trump probably tried to call a certain Colonel Nathan Jessup to hear him out on Gitmo policy. Doesn't make him any worse than Lindsey Graham. But I really do mean that Trump is interesting and not just outrageous or not only outrageous. On reality TV, they confuse the two. Trump is simple. He's savvy. He's unambiguous. He strongly backs policies, strongly favored by large swaths of the Republican Party. There is no wonder he's leading in the polls. Plus, free helicopter rides at the Iowa State Fair. His ascendancy makes me realize just how important politics are. And this is the other great Trump contribution. So there are currently, I don't know, a quarter of Republicans, which is to say like 10 to 12 percent of this country who really want this guy to be president. And this is why we need a good president. And this points out why we need a good government, because these 10 to 12 percent, these people, they need help. We need a good government to undo the mistakes they've made, the mistakes they're going to keep making, mistakes when it comes to matters economic, environmental, social. These people probably have kids. We're going to have to find a way to teach their kids and undo whatever lessons they're learning in these Trump households. These people might be business owners. We'll need an effective government policy to help their employees. These people, these Trump voters, they probably use the roads. We're going to need good policing. We're going to need a lot of ambulances to clean up their messes. The Trump voters probably are, in many ways, causing ripples of psychological distress for many people they come into contact with. That, too, comes at a cost. As a government, as a society, we're going to need to invest in plenty of baskets and lots of cases. Because if you vote for Trump, you are a basket case. And it's not like a Huckabee or Santorum voter who was raised in the church, who's trying to live out a set of values that might not make sense in the modern world. The results might even be worse if either of those two guys won the presidency. Don't worry, they won't. But I understand why people support Huckabee, why people support Santorum. It's what God told them to do. You know, momentum, inertia, family, generational pressure, that influences a lot of who we support. But no one can ever say, well, I grew up in a Trump house. Or during the Depression, every home on our block had two pictures on its wall. One was the Pope and one was Trump. People support Trump because they hear what he's saying and say to themselves, yeah, that sounds about right. Let's deport citizens. Let's go back to Herbert Hoover level tariffs. Let's build a wall for billions of dollars, despite the fact that a third to half of all illegal immigrants came here by airplane. The Trump voter needs help. He needs all of society's help. I hope Trump continues on identifying these wayward souls so that whoever gets elected can reach out to them or at least write their names down in fairly permanent ink.
And that's it for today's show. Metaphorically speaking, as producer of The Gist, Andrea Salenzi multitasks like an ADHD octopus who's been trained in air traffic control. Mike Volo edited the show with the precision and incisiveness of a German surgeon on Adderall. The executive producer of Panoply is Andy Bowers. He has the vision of a peregrine falcon, but the imagination of a Pixar executive. So the peregrine falcon who greenlit Wall-E, that's the guy I'm talking about. All right, so what, what are we talking about here? Frantic octopuses, hyper-aware medical personnel, raptors who take lunches at the Ivy. What else do we need? I know we need They Might Be Giants. Dial a song. In fact, the name of this song, part of the weekly They Might Be Giants Dial a Song debut every Monday here on The Gist, it fits in with our theme. So here now, They Might Be Giants with another weirdo. <laughs> 